0: So, Brian, Nathan, I get to do something today that I've kind of wanted to do for a while, but now I officially get to do it. And that is, somehow or other, in getting to know both of you guys over the years, your Floridaness has always been part of your identity. So, I now get to ask you, what was it like growing up in Florida and Did it seem like a strange kind of place when you were growing up, or is that something that we've sort of imposed on Florida?
1: So I'm going to jump in here because I basically came to understand America and what America meant through the television. And America was a place where the seasons changed. America was a place where people had a sense of community and neighborhood. America was a place where the kids were allowed to go down the street to the park and play football as they did on the Charlie Brown specials I watched coming up. And and none of that was my experience <laughs> of being a Floridian. The seasons never changed. And I actually remember, you know, my first sense of disconnect in my own mind about where I lived was the fact that Florida to me didn't feel like America. It didn't feel like the America in, in pop culture. Miami Vice was on television at the time, so that was the closest thing that I got <laughs> that kind of seemed, you know? But there, there is a way in which Florida always stood outside of whatever mainstream depictions were on offer
2: about American life. That's so remarkable, Nathan, because <laughs> I had exactly the opposite Experience. (laughs) Not surprising. I think a lot of this is generational. Your question just reminded me, Joanne, that unless you're as precocious as Nathan Connolly, you tend to think (laughs) that, you know, where you are is, well, everything's like that. There are a few reminders, or I should have been aware of, like when people, so Nathan noticed the seasons on television i only noticed that like when i would have to entertain visitors who would visit my parents and they would say things like don't you miss the seasons? <laughs> no, I don't miss the seasons. I don't know what no the seasons. No frame of reference at all. Right? I, I don't That's know right. what the seasons are. And there, and there was, you know, one more thing <laughs> that did stand out. Again, in retrospect, I just assumed that everybody had places like the Monkey Jungle or the Serpentarium. They're all tourist things, right? right? I mean, they're all to lure tourists to see a, a bunch of primates do tricks. Then there was the Serpentarium, which was just kind of scary. It was a bunch of snakes. So, you know, in retrospect, this is pretty weird stuff, but you don't think it's weird if that's kind of all you know.
0: Now, did either of you, when you were there, did you consider yourself as being in sort of capital letters, the South? Did you experience Florida as being part of the South, just trying to fit it into an American narrative?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the classic struggles of being a Floridian is trying to figure out where one's regional identity hangs, because as we know, the South as a region, you know, has such a, a history of um, self-identification going back to Clearly, you know the 19th century um, and you know the Civil War debates and the neo-Confederates imagery and all this stuff. And I got to tell you, I mean, the way I oftentimes describe this is you have to drive north to get south. These coming from yep. South Florida, mm. I know right?
2: exactly what Nathan means.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and there are there are pockets of the old Confederacy, kind of you know in the further southern reaches of the state, but there are very few. And but then when you get kind of north of Palm Beach, you realize you are actually in a different region so south florida is kind of an extension of new york and new jersey it's all northern territory down there and then you kind of get up to the central part of the state and you then you are back in the deep south and it has that feel it has that look the trees are different floridians spent a lot of time planting palm trees that aren't actually native to florida um, to hmm. to give it a <laughs> a different feeling. Once that planting kind of stops, then it's, it's this hanging moss, live oak, all that stuff is just hugely part of the the landscape in that way. So it it, it for me at least never felt like I was part of the South. I, again, I felt like I was on this kind of frontier of something else that was just hmm. kind of coming out of the the, the heads of people who were imagining what Florida could be.
2: And this is where chronology is is so important because I was born in 1953, so Miami, quote, progressive Miami, in the early 1960s, my schools were integrated, but there were still literally the markers of public Jim Crow, the -hmm. bus station, had Mm -hmm. segregated bathrooms, and I'm a white guy. But I was acutely aware of the markers of race. They were literally marked out. And then I really became aware of that when I would venture to those southern pockets. We called it the Everglades, generally. But there was a place called Everglades City, and everything was segregated. It's stunning, again, just to think
1: about the fact that Brian actually saw the code only signs that I've only seen, like, in images or, you know, in the archive. Because mm. it is that recent in the history of, of, you know, the state. But it is also, I think, important to keep in mind, to your question earlier, Joanne, about the South and its identity, that it was Northerners who brought Jim Crow to South Florida. Like, this was not anything, you know other than a way to make sure that people felt comfortable spending their money and growing the economy down there. So again, even even mm-hmm. at the level of the Old South tradition, it was part of generating interest and foot traffic and consumers and tourism. The people who are... But owning these department stores were oftentimes transplants from, again, you know, the the Chicago areas, St. Louis, you know, the New York area. Then they basically created these Jim Crow consumer spaces in these department stores, as Brian is talking about and so forth. And so, I mean, one thing I love about Florida as a place to think with is that because it has so many different identities and kind of regional loyalties in these different pockets, that you really do get a chance to see how America gets made in a place like that, right? Like, what are the decisions Mm. that are happening in the level of politics? What kinds of projections of mainstream America are coming out of Florida? Again, not just Walt Disney, but also, you know, thinking about the way that people are selling the tropics for northern consumers. All of this has to be thought up and there's there are very few places that have such shallow roots and were so mm. uninhabited for so long in the, the rich parts of the early republic and, you know, the, mid, the mid-20th century. Florida just wasn't that place. It was largely still empty deep into, you know, the late 19th century. So all that stuff for the 20th century had to be created.
0: Now, Nathan, you've actually written about the indigenous people of Florida. So my question for you is, how do they fit into this diverse, yet sometimes not so diverse story that we're telling.
1: So, yeah, when when I was a kid, uh, my my first encounter with the Native presence in Florida was actually my mom driving onto the reservation, which was right there off of 441, a main commercial drag. There was no, like, wooden gate separating the reservation from everything else. And she would buy cigarettes on, on, on the reservation. You can get the cheapest cartons of cigarettes from the Seminoles or the Miccosukee villages, as they were sometimes called. Or there was this riverboat. Tour That one can still go to. In fact, as I understand it, it's, it's the largest or the most visited tourist attraction in Florida still, which is the Jungle Queen, which is a riverboat that, that basically paddles down the canals of Fort Lauderdale. And you look at all these incredible seasonal residences and yachts, you know, these mansions and things. And then it ends with a, a quote unquote real Indian village where you watch somebody wrestle an alligator for tips. Mm. And and so that so the Seminole presence in the growth of Florida is really incredible because you know again these are not a timeless people right these are people who are actively cultivating the image of the frontier. There are, you know, these elaborate ceremonies that are being done largely for white tourists through the 1920s, where Native American people are getting married and charging admission to these events, where you have um, the conferral of land oftentimes done illegally to white developers, where the Seminole flag is being surrendered to the head of the Miami Chamber of Commerce, and this kind of elaborate replay of the Indian Wars, you know? I mean, it's right out of, like, the, the Buffalo Bill style, performance. And the thing that the people sometimes are surprised to learn when they get down to, you know, especially the 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 southern parts of the state, is that the Seminoles are still major players in the tourist industry there. I mean there is a massive compound down by where mom used to buy her cigarettes of the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. And they're building, you know, mm-hmm. as we speak, a giant guitar-shaped hotel <laughs> right there. <laughs> um, and it's it's just wow. it's the most Florida monstrosity you can imagine, because it's just oh. sitting out there in the middle of nowhere, this massive guitar <laughs> jumping up out of the earth. And, you know, it's again, it's, it's an extraordinarily lucrative <laughs> tourist destination. And then the Seminoles are making money hand over fist with their partners in in the industry. And so they are doing quite well down there. And so, you know, this is not a place where one goes to find the timeless red man. I mean, it is, it is a place where you get a really expensive hamburger and, you know, play the slots and, you know, you make sure you pay. <laughs> you pay the Seminoles. They're, they're doing proper for sure.
0: Now, in a sense, Florida is most In the news these days because of climate change. In a sense, Florida ends up acting like a kind of frontier of weather. And I wonder what are your thoughts about both the incredible development and then the the incredible vulnerability that comes alongside that?
1: So when the, when the seasons change in Florida, it was basically hurricane season and dolphin season, right? Those those those, those <laughs> the, the seasonal changes that I remember as a kid, and and hurricane season was real, right? And it is real, it is real, and you know you never quite knew when the the quote unquote big one was going to come. And that was part of the rhythm of living there. And I and I know, you know, having been down there as recently as, you know, the holiday season that just passed, that there is a kind of way that Floridians shake their fists at Mother Nature. Um, <laughs> and watching the skyline in Miami, and again, I have this as, as somebody who's looked at archival photos of Miami since the 20s, right, right up until, you know, driving down I-95, you know, a couple months ago, they don't know anything but building down there. They're going to keep building, no matter how many neighborhoods flood, no matter how many times there's talk about the bottom half of the peninsula getting covered by, you know, sea level rise. And it it really does feel like the city of Atlantis
2: kind of shaking its fist still. Nathan, Hmm. should we share a little secret with our non-Floridian friend? Uh, One of the Uh reasons Floridians are somewhat blase, I think, about climate change and the possibility of rising oceans is they've been filling in the darn ocean, For decades, (laughs) much of Miami is built on filled-in Biscayne Bay. I mean, why would you worry about a little rise in ocean level when you've been building in the ocean, in essence? Right,
1: right. You know, one thing I'll say, Joanne and Brian, that's been so um, rewarding, frankly, about studying Florida and, and growing up there is that it's the one place I feel very comfortable as a historian predicting the future. In this sense, I've always gotten the feeling that Florida's past is America's future. And what I mean by that is, you know, Florida has been this place that has been extraordinarily diverse. It has been this place that's been grappling with climate change. And it's this place where people are constantly kind of reinventing themselves in in response to one imagined crisis or another. And and the way that people have responded to this massive transformation and growth is in some ways a good indication of how we as a country will respond to, say, the continued influx of folks from Latin America or the problems of sea level rise. Like, I mean, people are going to continue to try to build. There's going to be ways in which old forms of discrimination get mapped into, you know, new demographic landscapes. I mean, all of this, you know, is a is really strikingly evident in the way that, you know, Florida has dealt with the last 50 or 100 years. And so there isn't a lot Mm. that, you know, people tend to think about when um, Florida comes to mind that's not about either the 25 electoral votes that are gonna be in play, you know, in the next election, or again, you know, where one goes to retire. But I do think, you know, if you bear down a little bit, there's a lot you can learn about the country from that place.